Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Welcome back to the podcast, where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career and life forward. Today, we have a special show all around diversity and inclusion in the age of the corona pandemic, specifically as we are seeing so many companies cut budgets and programs in the downturn economy. And we made such great strides in the past decade, and it's critical to continue this progress and keep it top of mind. And I'm excited, honored, and humbled to introduce my two guests experts on the subjects. They are the founder and senior consultant at OrgShakers, a human capital global consulting group. First, David Fairhurst, the gentleman joining me right now. Oh, and we have our second one right here. Let's do it. Maya, we are live. This is live TV. Awesome. Great timing there. <laughs> stay, 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 stay with us here. We're in the middle of the intro. And he recently founded his own consultancy called OrgShakers, which focuses on optimizing people in organizations. Until the end of last year, he was executive VP Global Chief People Officer. That's a big title, man. At a little teeny tiny little burger shop. Uh, you might have heard of it called McDonald's. Probably the world's largest HR role with oversight of almost 2 million employees in over 120 countries. And he's credited as one of the key leaders in delivering the company's historic business turnaround, which saw the firm's market cap rise from $93 billion, that's B with a billion, to $147 billion in just four years. And you can certainly check out more on David and his impressive pedigree and resume online. He's pretty easy to find. Uh, and he's known to be disruptive and a strategic thinker, and we'll put him to the test today. And previously making predictions, which have appeared in the Financial Times newspaper, and he tells me that today he has a few more to share with us. So he's going to put on his Nostradamus hat and, and see what's happening there. And thrilled to welcome. Thank you for bearing with us on your technical difficulties. Miss Maya Bordeaux, thank you for coming along for the ride. And prior to Org Shaker, she served as Chief Human Resource and Communications Officer at Tribune Publishing, leading all people strategies and programs, as well as internal and external communications. And her previous tenure includes leadership roles at Wilton Brands, McDonald's Corp, and North Shore University Health Systems, to name a few. I got to take a break from talking. And I had a pleasure to connect with both Maya and David last week before the show and discuss why DNI is so critical right now more than ever. And I'm excited to continue our conversation and share with everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us. Let's jump in. Maya and David, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you for having you. us. Thank you so much for joining. And everyone watching and listening, thank you for joining us on this special show. So let's jump in here. Um, you know, as I told you guys in our in our pre-show, you know, the core of the podcast is to really talk about, um, you know, folks' career journeys and really inspiring. So before we get to the meat of the conversation around DNI, I'd love if you could both kind of share a very quick snippet of your career story. You're both extremely accomplished. Um, Maya, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Oh, great. Thank you, Adam, for having us. And um, so I am a Chicago native, born and raised on the south side of Chicago. And so um, with the exception of about five years in California, I have built an, a, an HR career here in the Chicago area. And I have had the fortune of many diverse experiences. I've been in public companies, private company, um, nonprofit, um, PE-backed companies. And so through those experiences, I have what I call a very unique perspective and uh, being able to help companies with all of their people's strategies. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. David? 
Yeah, a little bit different. I grew up in the north of England, uh, in the industrial part of England. Um, my family were all retailers. After the war, we created retail businesses. And uh, my mum still <clears throat> works in that business. And she's heading in her 70s up for her 80s. So that's really cool. And by the time I was probably about 18, 19, I'd had three businesses of my own. So I had a, a family influence of entrepreneurialism. But then I went to work for a load of brands uh, like Heinz, Aerospace, SmithKline Beecham, which is now Glaxo, and Tesco, the retailer, and learned just about you know the, the real interest in how to optimize the people bit in organizations. And then five, uh, 15 years ago, uh, I joined McDonald's back in the UK and then for the last five years in the global role in uh, in the US where I could see just what you could do on the people strategy at scale, as you say, 120 countries uh, influencing up to 2 million staff. So how you can do your stuff but do it on a massive scale is a, is a really valuable thing. So that's me. That's fantastic. So fast forward to 2020. Let's talk a little bit about Org Shakers. It's a people consultancy, but what does that mean, especially the name? What is Org Shakers all about? Well, I think it's a fun name and it makes me smile. And, and um, <clears throat> uh, these are a set of people. Uh, we've all worked together before and you can tell uh, we get on. Uh, there's no silos between us. We enjoy working with each other. And they're all proven people, problem solvers, if you like. They've all worked around the world in different brands um, and at, at times together. Uh, they're all not afraid of being disruptive. They're all not afraid of finding the right solution for organizations. They're all in the sort of people space, people, insights, strategy, that sort of thing. Um, and as I say, a, a great set of people. I couldn't wish for a stronger team to set up this consultancy with uh, and to, you know, find the clients to provide some great value to. So fabulous team. Very excited. And shaking is what we're about. Moving and shaking. Oregon and moving and shaking. We love it. So let's jump in here. And it's important before we talk about the present that we kind of go back to the past here. Uh, and in our pre-chat, you, you talked a little bit about 2014 and this focus on this conversation around the youth problem and getting to 0% unemployment. Let's rewind a little bit. And I'd love if you could share some context and what that means in today's setting and how that kind of frames up our conversation. Yeah, I think 2014 was a really important year because um, it was a time when youth unemployment was rife. The headlines, you know, we, we forget, but the headlines everywhere were youth unemployment, youth crime, youth disaffection, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and I got access to a lot of data at the time, um, initially at a European level and then globally around birth rates and death rates and so on, and came to the realization that the world was going to run out of people. Um, the supply of labor was going to be um, outstripped uh, by the demand and the employers were going to find it increasingly hard to employ people. And that felt very counterintuitive at the time. It was in the Financial Times. I called it the workforce cliff. People thought I was crazy, but that was a prediction. We're going to run out of people. And what happened was, it was correct, that over time, by month, by year, we could see where it was happening. Germany was first, then Holland, UK about now, US about a year away from now. Around the world, it was getting tighter and tighter to find uh, people to employ, and employers were finding it harder and harder. The good news is, is that a result of that is that employers started to focus on making sure that those who perhaps could work in the workforce, but who were perhaps underrepresented, that they were starting to do a really good and creative job at getting those people back into the workplace. And I'm talking about like women who'd had babies that didn't return, older workers, people with disabilities that needed some support, uh, certain ethnic minority groups continued to grow in size as well. So employers have done a really good job over the last five or six years of bringing those people back into the workplace. Uh, because they needed to. 
Um, the issue now, of course, that I'm worried about is that given that unemployment is likely to increase in the short term, is employers' could, behavior could change and we could start to see a drop in some of that focus. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the term is called remarginalization, right? That true focus on disabilities, minorities, working moms. We made so much progress here. Maya, I'd love if you could if you could jump in and just talk about, you know, all of that progress that you've seen, you know, being on the front lines from 2014 up till March 2020. And then we'll jump into what's happening today. Yeah, sure. So um, companies have invested all, all over the world um, in uh, various diversity and inclusion efforts. In, um, in an effort to diversify the workplace, to build an inclusive environment, to um, diversify the workforce so that um, we are at a point as, as we were in 2020, there were for the first time in at least US history that there were five generations of workers in the workplace. And so what we really need to focus on now as a result of the pandemic is how this pandemic has has impacted this, these diverse groups of people. Um, with so many different people in the workplace, everybody's experience is gonna be different and companies have to be cautious about um, blanket approaches and generalizations and making business decisions without looking through a diversity lens. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough too. I mean, we're, we're making some generalizations here during this conversation. I mean, we're talking about large global conglomerates like McDonald's all the way down to smaller mom and pop operations. And there's tough decisions to be made. And I think that's important to frame up the conversation, right? There's budgets, there's profits, there's losses, and ultimately there's people at this. So let's talk about DNI. And it's a topic that we've heard a lot about. And there seems to be some differing opinions as to what will happen to these investments and progress as a result of, of COVID. David, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, first of all, um, I was listening to the BBC News um, a week or so ago, and the Bank of England was saying that the let's be clear about what's happening during this downturn is they call it like V-shaped is, yes, you're going to get a lot of uh, unemployment, you're going to get the economy falling off, but you're actually going to get it bouncing back very steeply. And so, you know, my prediction, you were looking for some predictions that Exclusive I'm showing with you. predictions. <laughs> Here is one, is that the workforce cliff will, will, co will come back. It's an issue. It's a trap that's waiting to be had again, but it's three to five years away. So as a result, let's make sure we learn the lessons of 2014 and not get ourselves into a mess again uh, by not investing in some of these uh, aspects and some of these talent-rich streams of labor. Um, so... That's the first thing is it's coming back. It's around the corner. Do not get trapped by um, uh, by by not not investing. And I think that's an important aspect is that whether you're a big business or a small business, uh, it feels like we're in a good position as employer right now. You've got plenty of people to choose from. Unemployment's going up. People might be keen to be employed again, etc. But it's just around the corner. And the other thing you've got to remember is that people will judge you. Your existing employees, no matter whether you're big or small, will judge you on how you behave during difficult times. 100%. And if you're switching off your apprenticeship schemes and if you're stopping to invest in long-term unemployed youth or, or, or not supporting older workers that are really having a tough time right now, and I'm over 50, so I can tell you. No. Oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know. It's hard to believe. Look at that well, hair. <laughs> I, 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 feel like, I feel like I could get my hair up like that. I should have spiked it up a little bit. Yeah, that's the one thing I'm not short of is hair. But, <laughs> but um, I tell you, you know, these, these groups need support right now. And it's not just those groups that are going to be watching what employers, good employers do, good, big or small. It's going to be the rest of your employee base. They're going to be judging you very heavily heavily on how you uh, continue 100%. or not in, in terms of this sort of investment. 
So let's pull back the curtain a little bit. I mean, you've been privy to some high-level corporate conversations too. I mean, what is that thought process within an organization when deciding what to cut, right? So a company's forecasting. They said, listen, we're looking 6, 12, 9, 18 months down the road. We're looking at the economy. And unfortunately, you know, we have to make some cuts here. How do you balance, you know, cutting people versus cutting programs and finding that that middle ground? I mean, this has to be an incredibly difficult conversation for leaders. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is that we are starting to see evidence that they are cutting, by the way. So I was talking to the great body called International Youth Foundation. They're a global body that support long-term unemployed young people. And they're hearing a lot of clients sort of putting things on pause or or cancelling things. But let's just say pause might be, um, you know, um, a term that many companies are using. But um, the other thing is that Stephen Frost, who was the uh, Olympic, uh, London Olympic diversity guy, he's big in the diversity inclusion space. He's produced some evidence to show that clients are starting to de-invest uh, in, in diversity. So there is definitely an evidence that people are choosing not to, certainly at the moment, either defer or stop some diversity work. But I get it. You know, I'm a pragmatist, you know, right. and I get that organizations are going to have to make some real choices about spend right now with reduced revenues and all the costs of, of, of the workplace that they're having to put in with this sort of accommodation because of COVID. I get it. But not every first of all, the first thing I would say is not everything that we're talking about in DNI costs a lot of money. You know, it can be about focusing your existing resources, making sure your recruiters continue to focus on on diversity, making sure that your trainers continue to focus on inclusivity training, etc. So that's the first thing. It's not just about budgets, it's about focus. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that some of these aspects of investment in diversity have fabulous returns. So my, yeah, you know, my, mm-hmm. yeah, long term and my, and, in, and even midterm and it my plea to some of my profession and, and people in businesses, you know, make sure you're looking at the ROI of some of these diversity efforts because, you know, some of it continues to hold up strong economically and mm-hmm. it's an important thing. And, and you've got to remember that this V shape, this cliff, this trap where you're going to struggle to employ people is three years away. So if you stop now switching it off and switching it on, you know, can cause you issues as well. Absolutely. Maya, do you think a lot of companies were quick on the, I'm sorry, you want to add to that? No, I was just going to add that um, I agree with everything David has said. And what is important is when you're assessing what you are currently doing with regards to DNI, there is evidence that there are companies that are shifting their resources in different ways. And um, what I am seeing um, recently, I would say just in the last week or two, is companies shifting their resources with a focus on mental health. And so um, I wanted to step back for a minute to just talk about that because um, I, um, I, I read a, an article in the Harvard Business Review recently, um, and it's something that was in that article that jumped out at me that sa- sounds very simple, but is really, really profound. And um, it said, you know, we we aren't all in the same boat when you think about this pandemic. Hundred percent. And um, and what that means, I mean, I think a, a silver lining in this whole experience has been the unification across the country, across the world, that that people uh, have really promoted togetherness, and that we're all in this together. But when you think of this metaphorically, it's really that we're all in the same storm but in very, very different boats. Absolutely. And when you think about these different boats, these different groups of people who have been adversely impacted or disproportionately impacted, it is people of color. It is, it is you know, our uh, black and brown communities. It is people over 60. It is women. 
Um, when I was at Tribune back in March, I was writing a piece um, for internal publication around DNI and the impact um, that COVID was having on diverse groups or you know marginalized groups. And I went to the uh, U.S. Department of Labor Statistics to look at the demographics of our essential workers, as an example. 78% of um, healthcare workers are women. 60% uh, of the labor force in the U.S. are um, black and brown people. And so it, it, it was in early March that I was looking at those statistics and it was amazing to watch this play out, how these communities have been disproportionately impacted right. by the pandemic. And so what many doctors are saying now is that a mental health crisis is developing in these communities because of this disproportionate impact. Um, you know, personally, I have a friend who lost her mother and her father five days apart, African-American woman who lost her mother and her father. And so the needs of employees are very, very different now. And what companies have to do when they're when they're thinking about their resources, um, their employee assistance program, their benefits plans, um, you, you have to look at it through a diversity lens. You have to look in it, look through um, a lens of everybody is going to need something different and there, there are going to be different levels of care that are needed and why it is so important that employee well-being is a 100%. central focus of your return to work strategy. Ab absolutely, right? And it's that balance for leaders to be optimistic, pragmatic, mm -hmm. rational, and empathetic. And that's tough. And it's tough for a lot of leaders to be all, all of those in ones too. So I think, you know... I, I'm gonna. I might get some some slack for this one, but I think we have to we have to give our leaders too a little bit of of leeway and understanding too, because they're humans. They're going through things on their own too, and mm -hmm. this is all uncharted for everybody. There's no playbook for this. Yeah. Right? I mean, you could go back to 9/11. You could go back to some other things in modern times too, but this is completely different. 9/11, we were physically able to open up stores the next day, right? I mean, right. If in, in businesses, right? If you kind of want to think of it a little bit like that, but this is very different. So let's let's shift over to talking about the returning workforce. Um, this is a part of our pre-call that really kind of stuck with me because there's a lot of things here talking about the word vulnerability, massive amounts of vulnerability. Uh, David, if you could dig into that a little bit, what that means. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we keep hearing this terminology around normal, returning to normalization uh, or the new norm. And I would caution line managers and leaders to not think about it that way because the tendency of thinking about normal is to get everything back to how it was or to calm things down or you know and it, it's not a new normal um it's an entirely new workforce with an entirely new relationship with an entirely new outlook and not only that but people are going to feel anxious and let me explain why and it's worth stepping back to think about the degree of this is that whenever you've been outside of work or when you've seen people outside of work in the past as an example you know, McDonald's were famous for creating sabbaticals years ago. I see people go on sabbatical before they go on it and they take, you know, a few months out of work. Um, they get anxious about going on it. They, they try to get everything ready. They go on sabbatical. They worry about what's going on back on at work. They're coming back from sabbatical. They worry about coming back. You think about women who've been out of the workplace for 15 years, bringing up children. You know, companies were smart enough years ago, like Goldman Sachs and Sarah Lee, to create uh, the return ships. Mm -hmm. uh, to specifically help them reintegrate or even at another level think about going back to your school reunion if you were walking back into the room of your school pals that you hadn't seen for years you would feel vulnerable walking yes. into that room <laughs> right good example and, 
And so it's just when people are vulnerable, their brains have been shaken, if you like, and they're, they're not in a step. People look to do uh, – everything becomes accentuated. So it's like the sort of, um, you know, uh, mole hill into mountain thing. If you do something really good to somebody who's vulnerable, then it feels like a million dollars. If you do something, a little thing that's not very good when they're vulnerable, it feels like a mountain. People are looking to be hurt or helped in periods of vulnerability. What does that so mean? Po- so p- basically, this is the point about loyalty, mm-hmm. right? This is when, when people are vulnerable, they are most um, impacted around building or destroying loyalty. So as a customer, think of it that way for a minute, and then we'll talk about employees. If you've had some really bad service, something really bad's happened to you, and then somebody comes along who's serving you and just says a little thing like, I'm really sorry, this should never happen to you. Let me deal with it. It's you know brilliant, unbelievable. You tell all your friends. If somebody gives you really bad service and then they say the little thing that gets sparks you, you'll never shop there again forever. People people's loyalty is massively affected when they're feeling vulnerable. Employees are no different than that. So there is a loyalty dividend to be had by thinking about the vulnerability of employees with all the groups and all the issues that Maya's just talked about there, and they are different in different boats. Uh, If you can master that, then this is a period of time as a supplier, as a leader, as an employee, as an employer, where you can actually drum up a lot of employees by thinking about the vulnerable state of this workforce and how you can bring them back in, the returnment, as we would call it, returning workforce. A lot of my colleagues are ex-colleagues. I have the benefit, right, and so hopefully I'm being helpful here and Maya and my colleagues is, you know, I'm not sitting in that job that I was in in McDonald's or else that job's going to be, there's going to be clipboards and testing and checks and all sorts of things they're going to have to deal with. I have the benefit of being able to sit back a little bit and think what would be helpful to my uh, HR colleagues to think about. And I think thinking about this as a vulnerability strategy as opposed to a series of things that you've got to check off, I think is a wise wise point to start. Reframing it. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and, and it's reframing. And, and both of you, we talked about the re, like the reassurance, the re-onboarding, the re-engaging, and the re-recruiting. The rule book has changed. Everything's yeah. changed. And, and there's such a, a, a fine, there's a microscope on everything that companies do. And when we talk about them, if we want to peel back the curtain a little bit on, on recruiting, Right. We talk about it with what that looks like, you know, um, you know, trying to bring back a returning workforce, trying to reach out to people that have been laid off. And the real problem, if we want to, you know, kind of zoom out a little bit, um, there are a lot there's going to be a lot less open positions for a much larger market group. And what's going to happen is all those A players that were let go for a load are going to be scooped up first. And rightfully so. That's what happens. The cream of the crop, you know, that gets taken. But what's going to happen to those B and C players? Right. Those people that, you know, were laid off, too. It's going to be incredibly more difficult for them. I mean, there's so many, so many elements to hear. Maya, what are your thoughts? So great question. Um, I think that um, this is a time where now you are rethinking what do you actually want to do, improving your skill set, um, going back to school, getting certifications. These are the things that um, we've, we're seeing many employees and many people across the world doing at a time where unemployment, you know, is at an all-time high. And so, being able to improve your skill set and your marketability uh, is really critical Absolutely. in such a highly competitive market. 
And um, when you asked earlier about like from a recruitment standpoint, not only those, you know, C and D players, but um, how do you retain the the A and B players? How do you re-recruit them? Mm -hmm. So re-recruitment is a part of this larger retirement strategy that David and I and um, other members of OrgShaker have been talking about. Um, those pillars that you that you mentioned earlier, Adam, reassurance, re-onboarding, re-engaging, and re-recruitment. And so um, if I can have a moment to talk a little bit about each of those. The stage is yours, Maya, please. So so, they're so, so important to um, successfully returning um, employees to work as well as keeping them engaged and retaining your talent. And so when we talk about reassurance, that is the focus on the person, on the well-being of of those employees. And never before in our lifetimes, in our careers, has that been more critically important than focusing on the well-being of employees. Not only um, engaging them from the standpoint of, oh, you want to drive performance, but you have to make sure that you have a healthy workforce. So you are checking in and laser focused on their physical, psychological, emotional well-being because a, a, a broken population of employees will be a disengaged workforce. And so that's why you have to create um, programs. You have to um, focus on the well-being with regards to mental health, with regards to um, de-stressors, with regards to uh, promoting self-care and, and allowing employees time off so that they can take care of themselves and their families. And, um, and, and I think that has just um, been something that we have never focused on as a business because, you know, we are cracking the lip and trying to make sure that we are as productive as possible and have these high performing teams, but you cannot pour from an empty cup. And so it's so, so important that you are making sure that you're taking care of your employees and checking in about them personally, not just their work and, you know, where are you on this project, but how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are the kids? How are your parents? Um, Everyone's going through it differently. Everybody has a unique experience and, and employers have to be. You know, open to that. And let's just say, let's just say hypothetically, you know, if, if, if when things start to open up and office space opens and companies are creating a safety zone, but how do you as a leader, as a people leader respond when someone says, I am not comfortable yet returning to the office, those conversations are going to be happening sooner than later. Absolutely. Then that, that is very, very real. And so there has to be this flexibility and an open-mindedness and empathy, as you said earlier, Adam, that there are there is absolutely going to be a portion of the population that is afraid to return to work. Mm-hmm. Conversely, there'll be those who are racing to get back to work. I mean, I talk to women leaders um, regularly who are like dying to get back into the workplace because it's incredibly stressful right now to be working from home in this, you know, very unique set of circumstances where also your spouse or significant other is at home. The kids are at home. Not everyone has a good physical environment to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was talking to somebody last week who said, um, can we reschedule because construction is going on right outside of my window <laughs> and we couldn't hear each other. And so it's not going to work. Right. So it's like all of these different circumstances um, that occur when you are physically in your home that um, that we just didn't have to deal with before. And so you have to be open minded. You have to be flexible. 
And, and as we are, you know, continuing to say, everybody is different. Everybody's in a different boat. And so you just, you cannot have um, this blanket approach to how you return people to work. hundred percent. I'm going to throw, I want to throw a quick curveball at you, David, if you don't mind, let's, let's say, you know, you're in this hiring position for an executive leader and you have two candidates in front of you. I'm stripping away the sex right here. We have two candidates. One of them is a single person right? They live in the city. They have lots of flexibility. The other person is a parent with three kids that are being homeschooled right now. Both have equal resumes. How do you remove the bias from hiring with that thought in your head that this person who's single might have more flexibility, less interference? How do us as leaders and hiring managers remove the COVID bias? Yeah, well, it's a great a great question because the first the first step in in any bias is to one be aware that bias exists because it exists in all of us. And secondly, this is so fresh this whole COVID thing, you know, that we are likely to see things not even just biases. We like to see rage. We like to see age rage. You know, yes. those over fifty are going to start saying, "Why am I not being hired?" I'm hearing stories of employers avoiding those over a certain age in case they die of this pandemic or maybe the next one. So that's that's going to cause Jeez. a lot of anger. I mean, that's how overt this is. But to your to your point is, I think this is a, a conversation. And I would hope that you would have processes that um, ensure that you are conscious of those sorts of biases and that you, you know, you, you, you factor that into your thinking so that you make sure you're not selecting on that basis. But the other thing I, I would say on to this reassurance point that you were talking about here is, I think there's been examples of how you can reassure potential candidates that you're just talking about here, recruits, or even um, or, or existing employees that are returning. And I, I'll give you a simple example, and there are probably many others when you think of it, is we used to have issues with young people coming in for their first job into the workplace years ago, into McDonald's, the biggest employer of young people privately in the world. And they would, a lot of, a lot would come in, they would do something silly, like they'd wear the wrong heels or makeup or do something that you can't, you're not allowed to do in a kitchen or whatever. They'd feel a bit silly in front of people, they'll not be familiar with it, and then they'd, then they'd leave because they felt silly. But by, very simply by videoing and sending them uh, information about the workplace, uh, and the restaurant before they actually came on day one had a massive reduction in turnover. And why? Because it was a, a way of building confidence about the sights, the sounds, the terminology, what to expect. I'm seeing technology being played in this in this space. Uh, there's a product called Onboarder, which is an Australian product, which is used for onboarding um, staff into an organization by giving them certain things via technology, texting to your line manager before you turn up. I'm seeing that sort of product being pivoted to be used to help people come back and to provide this reassurance that we're talking about here. So I think, you know, given that you're coming back to a workplace that's physically going to look different, like what does my desk look like? Do I have to get checked in and checked out? Is there plastic screens? I think by just, I mean, certainly if you were doing that to certain pockets of, of, of more vulnerable parts of your workforce, video in the office on your phone and showing them what it looks like may well help reassure people. So I think there's little really things, if we, you know, if we sit back and think about it, they're all human beings. What could we do to make somebody feel a little bit more confident, a little bit less worried and, and be under no illusion? This is a different world they're coming back to. Right. So, you know, I just think there's little things we could think about maybe. Yeah, they're, they're... Absolutely. And Adam, um, when you asked earlier about the um, bias between the two candidates, I think uh, that really highlights that this is an important time where companies should be reassessing their DNI education and what's available both online um, and in person for their employees. 
every employer should have some some type of educational material on unconscious bias because um, people aren't aware that they have these biases. As David said, you know, the, the first step is being aware that you're even that you even have this bias. And so I think it's um, an important time in our lives and in our careers where unconscious bias has to be tackled so that you aren't um, making decisions with these biases and discriminating amongst different uh, groups of people, right. particularly groups of people who are already marginalized. The, the other thing I would yeah, say that's, that's as well, Adam, is that some of these biases that existed in line managers before, I think may well ch may well have changed. Mm -hmm. And let me give you an example of that's that fine. is flexible working, right? Working from home. You know, you see a, a certain cadre of line managers that say, you can't do it, it doesn't work, I don't believe in it. You know, we've all seen those, right? You see others that are more open to it. Four, four months are, ago, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, let me tell you, um, in my experience, the reason why most of those line managers were um, nervous about their employees working from home was actually not because they didn't trust their employees. It's because they didn't trust themselves. It's control. It's because because they'd never, they'd never actually... Um, gone through flexible working themselves or had the belief that they could get up, uh, work from home on their own computer. Now they've been forced to do some of these things. It may well, positively, we may well find that some line managers and their biases may have changed for the good. And, uh, you know, and maybe that's maybe that's a positive. I'm not saying all, but certainly we might we might see some of that. And certainly an attitude towards flexible working is an obvious thing to think about. Yeah, no, 100%. So let's talk about leadership, right? I mean, there's been plenty shared about great leadership examples. We've seen we've seen them shine. We've also seen the failures, right? I mean, it just happens um, through the course, right? But, you know, what are these attributes do you think that we should be looking at leaders going forward in post-pandemic? What, what types of people, what types of leaders, what are those attributes that are really going to shine? Um, so I think the first thing that comes to, to mind and that I've talked to so many um, of my colleagues about is resiliency, and um, and your ability to lead um, through what we're referring to as the recovery period post pandemic. And I think we are going to be faced with so many challenges, both in the workplace and in life post pandemic, that um, some people are nervous and, and, and unnerved at the thought that, oh, my God, this this period during the pandemic was so stressful. I can't even imagine that post pandemic, once we get on the other side of this, that it'll be even more difficult. But as I mentioned earlier about the different um, personal issues that that will come into the workplace. Uh, it, it will influence the, the way we work, the way we interact and how people can engage and how productive they will be. And so being flexible, adaptable, resilient, and probably most important, empathetic. Um, um, empathic leadership, I think, is it has never been more important than uh, than this, this time in, in our in our lifetime and um, compassion. So not only being able to connect and understand and uh, empathize about what other people are going through, but uh, being able to speak to them compassionately, make decisions compassionately. And obviously, you know, we are running businesses. You have to make tough decisions. There right. will be, you know, decisions that impact people adversely. And that is unavoidable for many, many, many companies. You know, as we see these companies that are furloughing and layoff and filing bankruptcy, obviously there will be adverse impact. 
but it's all in delivery. It's it's all in how you tone messaging you do, transparency, how you deliver that message that you explain the why and you do it with compassion and with calm. Right. I mean, we saw Airbnb and in my opinion, do it really well. Um, you had the the CEO really discuss why those decisions were hard, how they came to those decisions and then what they did from a process standpoint, right? How yeah. they reached out to everybody individually had those conversations and really did their best to set everyone up for, for success. I mean, little things like keep your laptop, little things like that. We know how hard the job search is. You maybe not like a little thing like that. You've already invested into it. Absolutely. It's a sunk cost, right? Little things like that. Instead of taking back the lap, you know what? Use that lap. Like those are the little things that matter, right, David? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm seeing some horrific examples of where that's not happening as well. So <clears throat> I, I've had lots of conversations over the last few weeks about, performance management actually and uh, which is a very important process you know no matter what we think about annual appraisal and performance management it is the number one correlated process to mm -hmm. employee engagement so that that's a long-winded way of saying keeping your employees happy there's no bigger a process than how your performance managed I'm hearing um, a lot of stories about this sort of move towards technology where some of these sort of old-fashioned, let me call them leaders, are thinking, you know what? This is an opportunity now. If they're going to work from home, I want to see when they're logged into their PCs. I want to see how productive they've been. I want technology big that can big brother them. Like It's like going back to the 70s or 80s where people used to clock into a, a clocking machine and, you know, no. we dock them to – that lack of tr that old fashioned trust, that old way of working. This is not the time to go backwards and, and do all of that. This is the time to use the technology, but in order to have a more <laughs> ongoing conversation. So I do worry that not all leadership are good examples. And, you know, I'm British. So I'm going to give you a teabag example. I love the phrase stupid is, is that leadership is like a teabag. Um, you only know how good it is when it's in hot water. So we've just seen leadership in hot, in hot. I think that's quite good. I like it. I'm going to use that. It works well in Britain. If you ever in Britain, it works well there for your listeners from over there. So, um, but let me tell you that we've seen good and bad. We've seen the education sector, and I've been on calls about universities where you know the lecturers, the professors that for years have been teaching or whatever, they're now they're now on technology with you know people can see their lectures and some of the hierarchy of the universities are not always best pleased. Like some of these lecturers that are maybe more junior or unknown were brilliant at, at mm. learn, learning and students. Others like were way out of date and like oh my goodness is that the quality of what we provide? So what we're going to see through all of this and through technology as well is we're going to see leadership good and bad. So let's hope that we, we see what's good. And we're also going to see some talent implications here. Like, what do we need in our organizations mm -hmm. that we found out that we were lacking? Some of these leads. And what was really good, like you talked about Airbnb there with little examples. What did the good leaders do? And what do we need to make sure that we continue? Uh, to build on what Maya said, if I was focusing in the organization, I'd focus on one simple thing right now. EQ, emotional intelligence of your frontline managers. And by doing that, training them, recruiting for them, number one thing, because there are lots of band-aids of things around well-being. You know, you can mental health. And we've talked about lots of different things that you can support employees with. But there's nothing more important than having a supportive line manager that you feel that cares, that you can ask questions to, that is open, because all sorts of issues are going to come out. Number one focus for me in leadership right now, uh, emotional intelligence. And to your other point earlier, if I was recruiting for people, leadership right now, uh, we hear lots of things, different ways of calling good leadership, ambidextrous leadership or whatever. I call it very simply and leadership, A-N-D, 
and leadership. We need leaders who can deal with today and can figure out where we're going for the future. We it. need leaders who can deal with a country or a function or a market and can deal with the enterprise. We need leaders who can deal with execution and can innovate at the same time. So we need these sort of multiple, uh, you know, flexible leadership that they can deal with both hands. That's what I would recruit for. But number one thing right now, EQ. I, I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. So let's bring it home here. And thank you so much, both of you, for this incredible, deep, insightful conversation. And, you know, for me, I mean, I used to read a lot of books when I was younger, before kids and before this thing called Netflix came around. So for me, you know, for me, this show is really my masterclass. It's my MBA. And I am grateful and humbled to have both of you here from a learning perspective. And as I continue learning, there's some questions that I'd love to ask all my guests um, and really get your perspective. And I'll start with you, Maya. Um, what is the single greatest piece of advice you ever received that you take action on every single day? Ooh. David, you're getting it too, so you have a minute to think about it. So unfair. So, okay. Ladies first. first. <laughs> Gentlemen. So I, I would say um, be authentic and be comfortable in your own skin. And so um, I, I am naturally a very genuine and authentic person. And it is very, very difficult uh, for many people to be comfortable and bring their entire self to work. And I, I think I have learned through experience the hard way when you are not authentic, when you are not genuine, when you are not being yourself, um, it um, affects your credibility. It affects your ability to connect with people and you're not being true to yourself. And so, um, you know, it is important to be authentic, to be genuine, to speak your mind, um, even when it is an unpopular point of view, because all of us have a voice, all of us are important. And um, I encourage every person to bring your entire self to work. And if you can't do that, you're working in the wrong place. I love it, David. Yeah, I mean, for me, it goes back to where a lot of my advice came from, which was my granddad back in the 1940s when he set up the retail business, uh, family business. And uh, he did all sorts of little things at the time, some of which I thought were peculiar. But he, uh, he used to get involved in, you know, supporting people who were getting married, his staff that he couldn't that they couldn't afford wedding dresses. He used to support the police in all sorts of ways. I never I never really got some of the logic until he told me that if you look after your staff, they'll look after your customers. And, you know, he looked after his people really well. And it's the same for organizations. It's the same for me in my job. It's, I'm in that profession, but it's beyond me, is um, that if organizations can do what's right for people right now, and particularly when in a troubled time like this, then the, the loyalty dividend that you're going to get back from those employees is going to pay off massively with your customers. So that was my granddad's teaching. A hundred percent. And I really want all of my shows that I've been doing in the last few months and all my shows in general to really end on a positive note. So a couple things here, you know, we talk about silver linings. We talk about all these good things that have happened in the last eight to 10 weeks. Maya, I'd love if you could share a real quick personal silver lining and a professional silver lining. Uh, great question. So um, professional silver lining, I have been able to band together with a just wide range of people from different backgrounds, from different um, industries. Um, I have had colleagues reach out from literally all over the world because as you said earlier, Adam, nobody has ever experienced anything like this. 
And so this, this um, spirit of togetherness and um, trying to help each other out and support each other to try, try to figure out what is the right thing to do, how, what is the right decision to make, uh, this has been a very powerful experience with regards to unification. Um, as far as personally, uh, I have learned that I am actually more patient than I ever thought I was. <laughs> And um, it, some of that might be attributed to the amount of red wine consumption I've been doing during yes. the pandemic. But um, nevertheless, uh, you know, we have been challenged in a way that we have not ever before with regards to patients, you know, waiting out this um, shelter in place and being locked in, um, being, being locked in with, you know, our significant others and our children and not being able, you know, to do what we want to do. And, and then still being forced um, to stay in your business mindset eight, 10 hours a day, you, you, are, you have to stay focused and, and, and be a productive employee. And so that requires an incredible amount of patience and focus that, uh, that I didn't realize that I had. So I'm, I'm pretty proud that, that, that I have been able to patiently uh, live through this pandemic. And th that probably has a lot to do with uh, my, my safety and, and health of both me and my family. And so for that, I have an incredible amount of gratitude. I love it. David? Yeah, well, professionally, I, I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, having come out of um, fresh from practice in the HR community to being in this space, I've had a lot of time to be doing a lot of thinking and reading um, around, you know, we've talked about some of it today, that returnment strategy, uh, the remarginalization. So I feel like I've been adding some value professionally by being able to be um, slightly out of the of the front line and to add some thinking to it and to set up Orkshake as, as a result. So I feel really good about that. And I've been doing quite a bit of writing as well, which uh, some of which is, is yet to come out. So excited about that and professionally giving that time to, to think. It also reminds me actually that, you know, we've really got to make a conscious effort when we do get back into the mainstream of our daily lives to create that time that we've we've carved out when we've been working from home to actually think and take time to think and reflect, which um, I think is good. On the personal level is it's just given me a whole level of access to children's cartoons and Peppa Pig that I've never really seen before. Peppa Pig. Yeah. I, mean, oh, I, have, I have a two year old and an eight year old. I've been through Peppa. I'm in Peppa phase. Yeah, oh. Peppa phase. And what's nice for Peppa for me sitting here in Chicago, of course, is I hear that little British accent coming through. Uh, my kids that sound home. very American, but it gives them a little bit of British so it sounds like the dad so so I think I've been uh, reconnecting with my uh, my little ones kids in a way um, uh, that's been nice as well and spending time that you wouldn't normally get so I think that's been special yeah I love it and 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 last but not least and this is a question that I ask every single guest on the show because for me there's a power that pulls me is a power that that moves me for everything I do and that is my north star my north star my two kids and my wife so I'll ask you Maya first you know Bad days, rough days, when you need something to pull you up. Good days when you want to show gratitude and you're thankful. What is your North Star, Maya? Probably, probably my mom. My, my mom has um, really influenced who I am, how I think, how I live, how I love. Um, she's an amazing woman and um, has truly lived life fully. And I am incredibly inspired by that. And so um, 
whenever I'm down, whenever I have a question, whenever um, I need some inspiration or some encouragement, my mom is there for me and, and she knows everything. I have a mug that says, I don't need Google because I have my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's fantastic. And David, what's your North Star, my man? Well, I think uh, it sounds a bit more generic, but I think that, you know, I, I never underestimate the, power, the the power of people and how the impossible can be made possible through the efforts of of of, uh, of people and particularly people in organizations. So I never cease to be amazed by uh, what people can really achieve and particularly uh, in, in a difficult time. And we see great examples around the world and the efforts of those carers and all sorts of things. So for me, that's my null start is seeing people do what seemingly is impossible and it gives you an inspiration to to really carry on not just in business but particularly in my profession i love it david maya i want to thank you both first for your time your insights your wisdom this has been a tremendous conversation and i really hope that everyone who's been watching live everyone's going to be watching on the replays everyone's going to be listening to the podcast when it comes out gets a ton of value and insight from it where could folks find you where could they connect with you where could they learn more yeah, well, we've got a great website. Well, we think it's great anyway. It's www.orgshakers.com. So that's you can find us and talk to us there. David, Maya, thank you so much for joining me. Everyone watching, listening on the replays now, forevermore, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and your energy. It means a lot to me for tuning in. Um, and everyone, listen, You know, there's more live podcasts to come. I'm back on Thursday with Sean Anderson. We're going to talk about recruitment marketing, and we'll have also Andy Foote after to talk about the good old LinkedIn algorithm. Everyone listening, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Please follow us on all the social media channels. Check out www.thepodcast.com for more. Remember, be kind to each other, take care of one another, and wash your hands. Be good, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Catch us next week for another great episode. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.